How's everybody doing this morning? How's everybody doing this morning? That's more like it. That's what it sounds like when you have a bunch of people get together that realize that they're blessed. I am so blessed to be here and to be able to teach a message that I feel like God put on my heart. I'm so blessed when I always look out and I see all these faces. I'm blessed when I hear people say, I visited your church for the first time, and I have to tell you, first and foremost, your people are so friendly and are so nice. The greeting time, when you guys, I look around, I always try and identify first-timers you know, when, when I'm walking in, so I go like, okay, if nobody talks to them during greeting, I'll go over there and do it, and I never have to do that because you guys are so great at that, and that just warms my heart as a pastor. Another thing that warms my heart is being able to share a message that I feel like is one that, that God truly brought to me. Okay, now a little transparency here. Normally, I do message prep on Wednesdays, okay? And so Wednesdays, I'll sit down, and I'll already have an idea of kind of what I want to preach about, but I'll bring it to the Lord, and I'll pray about it, and have him kind of show me the direction he wants me to go. And then I'll write the message, and I get it mostly done on Wednesdays, maybe fine-tune it later. This week on Wednesday, as I'm praying about this, I had crickets. I had nothing. I had nothing. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll jump into my to-do list, and I'll just do a bunch of stuff, and we'll see what happens. Thursday comes again, crickets. I got nothing. I'm like, okay, Lord, what are you, what are you doing to me now? Um, I got to preach in two days. What are we going to do? On Friday, on Friday, I'm actually sitting in my office, and I'm looking at the calendar, and I'm just kind of thinking about what direction to go. Um, and God shows me something that I've, I've never noticed before. First of all, I look at the calendar, and I'm going, okay, it's eight weeks till Easter. I don't even know that. It's eight weeks until Easter. Isn't that crazy already? You're welcome. You're welcome. Eight. How many more shopping days till? No, that's not. They're going to run out of plastic Easter eggs if, if you don't get to the store fast. Um, but eight weeks to Easter. And so I started looking at the calendar, and I'm like, man, you know, and I start praying about, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to, do you want me to, to start teaching on Easter? Do you, do you have other things for me? And he showed me this. He, he, he started showing me the stations of the cross. And I remember Gabe and I went to Israel uh, several years ago, and they actually have a place called the Via Dolorosa, which literally means the sorrowful way or the sorrowful road, um, which is the path that Jesus took as he was leaving Pilate's judgment on his way to be crucified. And I'm looking at that, and, and I'm reminded of the, of the stations, and I remember, again, when we went to Israel, I believe there were 14 stations that they do, and I thought, how cool would it be if there were 14 weeks until Easter, and I could do, I could do one of those each week. And I never knew this, which is one of the ways that I know that it's the Lord. And he said, those aren't the ones that are in the Bible. Check the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about stations of the cross. And he re immediately reaffirmed to me my original charge that he gave me to preach the word. Don't add anything to it. Don't take things away. I want you to preach straight out of the Bible. And so I started doing some research on this, and here's what I found. I found what's commonly referred to, I say common, but not many people even are aware of it, called the Protestant Stations of the Cross. 
Okay, And they call it the Protestant stations, not that there's anything different, but that the 14 stations of the cross, or sometimes even 15, are for the most part a construct of the Catholic Church. Okay, They're the ones who originally started to observe them. They're the ones who made them official and really made them a part of what they do uh, in their services. And that's, that's okay, but there's a version. There's eight specific stations of the cross that are explicitly listed in the Bible. Now, the others are things that are inferred about things that happened along the way. Some of the inferences come from historical references and eyewitness accounts and things like that, but they're not in Scripture. If you look at Scripture, what it actually points out are eight specific instances that correspond to what we call the Stations of the Cross. And then, of course, the Lord immediately showed me the calendar, say, eight weeks, eight stations that are listed in the Word, and that's what he put on my heart. To teach. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to retrace, beginning now, we are going to retrace Jesus' steps along the Via Dolorosa. From the very beginning, we're not going to go back too much further than Pilate's judgment. In fact, that's station one, is the judgment of Pilate. I'll set up kind of the groundwork for that ahead of time, but we're not going to go back into the days leading up to that. But we're going to do that, and we're going to culminate the week before Easter to where we can have a Good Friday celebration here together, and I'll talk more about that as we get a little bit closer, and then Resurrection Weekend. So I think it's something that is very much uh, God-ordained, and he put it on my heart, and I'm really excited to get to share it with you guys. Really excited. So without further ado, let's get into it and let's talk about it. First of all, you've probably heard of, of uh, the stations in terms of like the Passion of the Christ, Okay, you've heard of the, the Passion or the Passion of the Christ or the movie. Anybody seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ? I had a discussion in the foyer. I've seen it one time because it's so powerful and it, it is so just destroying uh, inside that I couldn't bear to watch it again. It, it's a great movie if you haven't seen it, but, but be prepared because you can't watch it and, and not have an understanding of the gravity. But The Passion... When I was a new Christian, or even before I was a Christian, I'd heard that term, and I'm like, what does that mean, the, the passion? It didn't make sense to me with what my image of, okay, the passion is a beaten and bloodied Jesus, you know, being taunted and, and spit upon. How, what does that mean? And I started looking at that, and the word passion literally is a, is a Latin word that just means to suffer. It means to suffer. And that kind of makes sense. If you are passionate about something, if you are deeply, deeply passionate about something, it's, it's a burden on your heart to either share that or to act upon it. You have to. And so that, the, when you hear the passion, that's just literally the suffering, or the suffering of Jesus in this case. So why the stations? Why are we going to talk about the individual stations? Well, the stations are, if you've ever heard the term, praying the stations of the cross, okay? Or on many churches... During, um, during the Easter weekend, they'll have literal stations set up with little cards, little placards that you can go and kind of read what happened. And the idea is that you would recognize the significance of what happened on that spot to Jesus along his journey. Okay? But God really impressed upon me that, that the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is more than a one weekend thing. It's more than a let's get together and let's cram everything into one weekend and thus do no real justice to the gravity. 
Okay, the conversation, again, just a, a foyer conversation that I had with one of you was that a lot, of, a lot of churches, when they do their Easter services, they really dwell on, on forgive me, the blood and the gore and the, and the horrificness of what actually happened. And they do that in an effort to illustrate the gravity of what happened, to illustrate how terrible it was that it happened to our Lord and Savior Jesus. And, and they do that purposefully to lend gravity to it. But I think that by taking these next eight weeks and by being intentional about going through each station and talking about the significance of what happened at that station, I think that in itself lends gravity. Okay, if anything, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to downplay some of, some of the gore part of it, but I don't think we need that. I think we all have an understanding of what that is. Okay, and I'm not going to ignore it, but we're not going to emphasize it either. It really is an act of devotion. When we go through the stations, we are, we are remembering what Jesus did. And in my mind, we're remembering that at pretty much every step along the way, especially leading up to, he had every opportunity to change that course. He had every opportunity to, when they asked him, are you the Christ, say, um, no. On second thought, no. I'll just, I'll just go home now. He had every chance to say that, but he never did that. And he never did it, and he never backed away from who he said he was. Never once, even faced with crucifixion and death. And he did that for us. And he did that. The reason that we want to spend this time on it is with an understanding that he did that for us selflessly out of a true heart of servanthood, out of a true burden or a passion in his heart to not leave us unreconciled to God. See, that's why he went through all this is because he refused and Father God, out of his loving heart for his children, said, I cannot have my people unreconciled to me. I need to make a way. And the way is that Jesus had to pay the price. And Jesus knew this it had been prophesied, and he knew that that was his path to walk. And out of his love for us and his refusal to walk away from, from his responsibility to reconcile us to God, he refused to do that, and that's what every step is about. So we're going to start working our way through the stations. Again, the Via Della Rosa, the sorrowful way, is a real place. So I want to show you our first picture Take a look at this. This is station number one, okay, which is um, the judgment of, of Pilate. So this is what was called the Praetorium, okay, or Pilate's Judgment Hall. Right now, this is what it looks like right now today. When we think of things that are old in this country, okay, if you find a building that's 100 years old, you're like, man, that's an old building, okay? Every now and then you'll find one that's 200 years old. If you go back to the East Coast, you know, you might find some that are 300. And we're like, whoa, that's an old building, okay? You go to Jerusalem, and this is in Jerusalem inside the walls. This is thousands of years old, and, it, and it's intact, and it's just like it was, with a few exceptions, but it's mostly just like it was. They don't allow remodels. You can't paint the outside. You can paint the trim, but you can't paint the buildings. It's all, everything in Jerusalem is the same color. It's the same type of stone, and it's all original. So you might find layers of things where things have like crumbled and new things built on top of them, 
But this right here, station number one, this is the actual praetorium, which was Pilate's house of judgment. Okay, right now it actually happens to be a convent. It's been, it's been repurposed, but it's a convent. You can visit that in Israel today. So that circular thing up on the top right, that's, that's a number one, okay, meaning station number one. And as you walk through the streets of Jerusalem down the Via Della Rosa, again, the sorrowful way, you walk down this, you'll find 14 different stations. And each one of those stations is a point at which something significant happened in Jesus' journey from Pilate's judgment to Calvary, okay? Or Golgotha is, is the term, is what they actually named the mountain. I'll show you some pictures of that when we get a little bit closer to that. But so what we're going to do is we're going to start right here. Now, again, we're going to talk about the eight that are explicitly listed in the Bible. The 14, a lot of them are tradition-based, Okay, so when you, it's not that it didn't happen, but the Bible doesn't talk about it. When you go to Jerusalem, or if you're actually on a tour through there, a lot of things you'll hear him say, tradition says this is where X happened. Tradition says this is where Y happened. Okay, and then at some times they'll say, this is the spot where something significant happened. So sometimes they know by reference or by however research they do, they know that this is the spot. Sometimes they say tradition says, which means that there's some disagreement on did it happen at this place or did it happen on this place. And in some cases, those disagreements come from the fact that a, a specific church or, or group of people will say, hey, we're going we're gonna to say this happened right here because this is what we believe, and we're going to build a temple. In fact, we're going to build a church over it and say this is the spot where that happened. And then there are others who say, well, it could have happened there, but there's also another narrative that says it could have happened over here. The point is not the exact spot. The point is that we agree that these things happened. These things were significant, okay? And the vast majority of them along this Via Della Rosa, again, there, there is either scriptural or there's historical backup to say this happened. The reason I show you this picture is because this isn't theoretical. This isn't a story about somebody who somebody thought existed one time. This isn't mythology, this isn't a superhero story. Jesus was a real man walking around in a real place that you can visit today, and you can point to these. This happened here. This happened there. Jesus walked on this street. Jesus was a real man. So when we look at these things and look at what he endured for us, he wasn't, he wasn't a made-up character. I want you to know that these things really happened to a flesh and blood man. Yes, he was God, but he was also man. And so he experienced every pain. He experienced every emotion that we experience. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this, that would you have faced with the, the certainty of what was about to happen to you? How many of us would have said, I'm going to go through this for someone else? I'm going to go through this for a whole bunch of people, many of whom will never acknowledge me. It's not about him saying, I'm going to go through this because, man, they're going to carry me out on their shoulders afterwards. They're going to do the wave for me as, as I'm being crucified. He knew very well that there was not going to be acceptance from many, many people. And yet his heart was that I refuse to allow these people to be unreconciled to the Father. So it was out of his servant heart to do that. 
So that's why we do it. We're going to go, station one is what we're going to talk about. Um, station one, uh, let me explain something really quick here. The Gospels, okay? We're going to go through, we're going to use all four of the Gospels as we talk about, as we progress through these stations, okay? I'll pick a scripture that, that talks about the specific station, and I'll choose one of the Gospels to go from, but all four of the Gospels have an account of what happened here, okay? Now, let me explain really quick, back up, what a gospel is, okay? The gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, for those who may not understand that. First four books of the New Testament, the three of which, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, okay? If you've ever heard that term. I try to throw out these terms because I don't want anything to be mystical or like, I don't understand that, but I guess maybe once I'm a mature Christian, I'll understand I want there to be no hindrance to us understanding the Gospels. It shouldn't be a mystery. It shouldn't be something that you need to have somebody tell you what it says. Now, my job, I believe, is to make it clear to you. My job is to remove all those stumbling blocks against really understanding the, the, what happened okay, and what the Bible wants you to know. So the Gospels, first four books, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first three are called synoptic, and if you look at the root of that word, sin just it means the same, right? And optic means view. So those first three come from the same point of view or the same viewpoint, okay? And that's what those are. Now, like anything, if you read them, you'll find slight differences. Not differences in what happened, but slight differences in the viewpoint. You ever played that game where, like, you'll see something and have two different... Okay, we have a lot of police officers here, right? You ever talk to two witnesses of the exact same event? Okay? One person describes it this way, and the other person describes it this way. They're describing the exact same thing, but you're like, were you guys looking at the same thing that happened? Because it sounds totally different. You'll find differences like that because these are written by men. And they're by men who have their specific, this is, the, this is the viewpoint that I'm coming at it from, okay? So even though they're synoptic, they describe the same events with, with the fourth of John having been written later. So they don't call it one of the synoptics. It was written later and from a little bit different point of view. <clears throat> but that's where we're going. So that's, that's what we're going to draw from as we walk through this. Okay, so let's go to station one, which is called Pilate Condemns Jesus to Die. Uh, this is from, go ahead and throw that second image up there. This is from Mark chapter 15. I really want to encourage you all to read the entire Mark chapter 15, if you can. It's not super long, but it is a great representation of all the way through uh, the Passion Week. So here's, here's the picture. You can see Pilate sitting up there on, on the judgment seat up there. He is, he is looking completely bored and disinterested, right? He just wants this to be over. You see the, uh, the chief priest right here, and he is, he is all animated and freaking out, and he's pleading his case to Pilate, and then you see Jesus standing over here, okay? And then, of course, the crowd in the background, and the crowd to them, it's just this giant curiosity to, uh, for some of them, and the others are just chanting. They want, they want Jesus to go away. So I want to kind of set the stage for what's going on here. Pilate, uh, is, his title, he was a, he was a Roman, and his title was procurator, okay? Procurator is what they called basically the governor of the territory, okay? Pilate was the governor of the Judean territory. He had been appointed by Rome to go over there and keep the peace and collect the taxes. That was Pilate's entire job, keep the peace, collect the taxes. And the more he could do to keep the peace, he wasn't concerned with, with the Jews having 
a full and abundant life. He wasn't concerned with, with things being great for them. His basic thing was, you guys take care of yourself and don't bother me. The more I have to deal with you and your internal squabbles, the more angry I am, and you don't want me to be angry. Okay, So his entire job, keep the peace, get the taxes paid, and that was it. He happened to be at this time. Normally his house is in a place called Caesarea, which is quite a ways away from Jerusalem, but he was in Jerusalem for Passover. Okay, his, One of his jobs was just to kind of interface with the people and make the people feel like, like hey, you're, you're Roman governors, they care. So he would show up to events like this and, and be kind of a figurehead there. Um, there are other things that he would do to basically just kind of sow some goodwill among the people because the more goodwill they had, the more calm and peaceful they were and the less trouble they were for him. So that's where he is. He's not in a place where he's really even interested about what's going on here. And this painting does a great job depicting that. He looks completely... Today, he would have a phone in his hand and he would be like... He would be like Checking his Facebook, right? And even the, in that, you could see, okay, insert phone here. I should have Photoshopped a phone in there. It would have been perfect. He doesn't care about what's going on here. He just wants it to go away, okay? But the, but the, uh, the priest here, he's the, he's the high priest. He's actually the head of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is nothing more than just a, basically a Jewish court, okay? But, and they've got authority to do a lot of things, but they don't have the authority to impose punishment. So in order to do that, they've got to come to Pilate and say, okay, here's what we found, and if you agree with that, then you can impose some punishment. Only the Roman procurator could impose punishment. So we find Jesus in this place because he's been betrayed by Judas. Okay, and I won't go into that story right now, but Judas, one of, one of Jesus' uh, disciples, has, has betrayed him. The Sanhedrin has come in, or the, the officers and guards of the Sanhedrin have come in, and they've captured Jesus, and they've, they've brought him to trial, okay? Now, to trial means at the Sanhedrin, so that's not what this picture is. That actually happened before this. They're in there, and they're pointing fingers at Jesus, and they're accusing him, and they're trying to get him to admit that he's done something wrong so that they can impose their punishment. And as they do this, Jesus refused to defend himself, okay? But Scripture actually even records that as they are bringing witnesses forward to, to accuse Jesus and tell him these things, Scripture actually even says that their testimony was not consistent and that it was false, okay? So things that happened thousands of years ago are still happening today, right? The testimony was not consistent testimony was false, and they couldn't really come to an agreement on what they were doing, but here's what they knew. We've got to get rid of this guy. We have to squash this guy and his growing group of Christians called the way at the time who were following Jesus were becoming a problem for the Jewish leadership, and they didn't want that. So the high priest is questioning Jesus, and here in Mark uh, chapter 14, 61-62, it says this, The high priest, again, is questioning Jesus, and he says, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Now that alone right there is enough to make the high priest freak out because the words, I am, was reserved only for God. And so Jesus saying this was immediate blasphemy. And then he goes further. 
He says, I am. And then Jesus says, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, the reason it's capitalized, all caps in there, is because that's prophesied. That refers to Old Testament scripture where it's prophesied here. The high priest would have well known where that came from. Part of it's from Psalms and part of it's from other places, but he would have immediately known that this Jesus guy is quoting our scripture, and he's saying that's referring to him. Okay, and then it said, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Let me just explain something really quick. You've seen a lot of scripture where it says tearing his clothes, right? Gnashing his teeth, tearing his clothes. Tearing, I always wondered about that. Tearing his clothes is a, is a symbolic thing. It's a ceremonial thing that they actually do during a lot of their ceremony, and they do it for show. So they don't wear their finest clothes and like start tearing their clothes off. They actually do it as a show of, of disgust and a, and a point of emphasis. Kind of like now if you have glasses, you take your glasses off to show people how serious. I'm totally serious, and you take your glasses off. I don't know how that means you're serious, but that's what it means. If you watch a movie or a TV show, they, yeah, never mind. I've, gone, I've gone too far. Anyway. So at this point, they decide, okay, we don't, we don't need any more witnesses. Forget this. We're going to take him before Pilate, for Pilate's judgment, okay? And in this period of time, they're holding on to Jesus. They're holding him overnight. He is beaten. He is slapped around. He is spat upon, okay? He is treated very harshly. And again, at any one of these points, Jesus could have renounced and said, nah, you know what? I changed my mind. Let's, let's not do this. I'll just go out and I'll do some more ministry once I'm away from you. And they would have let him go. They would have gladly let him go if he just promised not to do ministry anymore. But he didn't do that. So it's right at this time, as they're, they're taking him then, the next morning, they're taking him from uh, where he was judged there and where he was kept, there, which you can also see in Israel. They're taking him to the praetorium where Pilate is. And it's along this way, just for a point of reference here, that you've, you may have heard the story about Peter, okay? And Peter, where Jesus says, you know, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me. And Jesus says, no, no possible way will I deny you. No way, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm going to stand up for you. And it's at this point where as the crowd is watching, it's, I imagine it was a circus as they took Jesus to Pilate, and there's crowds standing by and everybody's watching. And at one point, Scripture says, a young girl sees Peter and says, hey, aren't you the one that was hanging out with the Nazarene? Nazarene is what they just called Jesus at the time, okay? Weren't you the one that was hanging out with it? And Peter's like, not me. No way, because he sees this mob, and he would just immediately be caught up in that mob. There's no doubt. Peter says, it's not me. And in fact, Scripture says that he cursed, okay, that he yelled and he cursed and I think he probably did that because he didn't want anybody to think there was any chance. Okay, so not only am I going to denounce him and I'm going to say, no, I don't know this guy, but I'm going to curse and I'm going to be kind of a rough guy that, that they'd say, okay, well, he's, he's clearly, with language like that, he's clearly not hanging out with Jesus because that's the opposite of what Jesus was. But so, anyway, at that point, a rooster in the background crows. And when that happens, that's that moment, if you've read Scripture, where Peter realizes that what Jesus said was true. And it says that he weeps. He begins crying because he realizes that he had done exactly what he said he wouldn't do. So that's just a point of context in where that happens in this journey. 
Okay, so next we fast forward, and now we're in the judgment hall. <coughs> Pilate, they bring, they bring him before Pilate. Okay, and Pilate has one concern. Again, two concerns, right? Keeping the peace and collecting taxes. And none of this has to do with collecting taxes. So he wants to keep the peace. But Pilate says, okay, there's, there's one thing that I can get Jesus on. I don't care about these religious squabbles of who's who. But there's one thing I can get him on, okay? They call it insurrection. If he says he's a king, you can't be a king in, in a Roman-controlled territory unless Rome approves it. So if he says that he's king, then Pilate goes, okay, now I've got one of our laws. I don't care about your laws. I've got mine, and I can pin this on you, and I can go ahead and, and punish you. So this is where we are. Pilate asks, this is in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 2, are you king of the Jews? Just plainly ask that right to Jesus. Now again, Jesus has the opportunity to say, no, not me, because I see where this is going. You've got me. If I say yes, I'm guilty of your laws, and you will punish me. The Romans were very good at punishment. They knew their way around pain, and they knew how to inflict it. And so he knew immediately in that moment what was coming if he didn't denounce it. Now, again, he could have said, not me. I don't know where these guys are getting this. And he probably would have walked away. He could have restarted his ministry. He could have done something else. But his heart was, I need to do this. The Father has shown me this way. It has been prophesied. I know my path, and I refuse to let these people be unreconciled to the Father. I refuse to not do my part in making a way for these people to know God. And so he said, okay. His answer to Pilate's question was, it is as you say. It is as you say. So at that answer, the chief priest, and, and going back to that picture, I'd imagine that's exactly at that moment, the chief priest, the high priest, is freaking out over this. It's like, kill him, do it, do whatever you're going to do, do it right now, because that's all you need to know. But Pilate's sitting there, and he says, this guy doesn't look dangerous to me. You guys are all freaking out over this guy, but he just doesn't look, he's peaceful. He doesn't look dangerous to me. So he again gives them another chance, and he's talking to Jesus, well, why, why won't you defend yourself? So then he gets a brainstorm, this pilot, and Pilate says, okay, I've, I, I know what I can do. Every year, traditionally, every year, Pilate, or whoever the governor is at the time, has the opportunity to pardon one criminal. And he, he'll, pardon, he'll issue a pardon to a criminal, regardless of what their sentence or what they did. He'll issue a pardon to whoever the Jews choose. So they get to pick one of their own people who have been imprisoned, and he will issue a pardon as a sign to, of goodwill. But he lets them pick. So he goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out Barabbas, this guy named Barabbas, okay, who's languishing away in the jails just awaiting his punishment. He pulls him out. Now, Barabbas is a well-known, they call him an insurrectionist, so he's, he's like a terrorist. Okay? That's what we would call him today. He's a terrorist. He's a murderer, and he's a, and he's a thief, and he's an armed robber. They know this Barabbas guy, and he is a bad dude. And he says, I'm going to give them the opportunity. 
Okay, here's the deal, guys. You can pardon Barabbas or you can pardon Jesus. Now, his thought is they're not going to want this hardened criminal released back into their society. So they're going to pardon Jesus. End of problem. I can go back to checking my Facebook page. (laughs) That's what he's thinking. But here's what happens. The Jews say pardon Barabbas. See, to them, having a hardened criminal, a terrorist, robber, murderer released back into their society was less dangerous than Jesus. Less dangerous than what Jesus was going to do to them because they knew. If they didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah, if they didn't think that Jesus was who he said he was, they would say, this Jesus thing will die out soon enough. So don't worry about it. But they don't. They choose Barabbas to be pardoned over Jesus. So, here's what we do. Uh, here's what we know that happened after that. They start asking. He, he says, okay, what, what should we do with Jesus? This is, is uh, Pilate. He says, what should we do with Jesus then? And the Jewish people start screaming, or the, Jewish, the Sanhedrin start screaming, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate says, what has he done? What has he done to warrant crucifixion? The punishment for what he had said to Pilate was to be scourged. Okay, scourged means basically whipped and beaten. Okay, now I actually have a, a mock-up of what the, the flail that they used to whip and beat people. I was going to bring it out, but I felt like that was unnecessary because it's, it's terrible. Many of you have seen those images and the harm and the pain that that inflicts. Many times, itself leads to death. Okay, but if they don't die, then they go that next step further and they crucify them, which is always a death sentence. If you are sentenced to be crucified, nobody walks away from that ever. You could walk away from being whipped and beaten. But so Pilate says, what has he done? And they start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate says, okay... This is where we go to Mark 15, 15, if you throw that up there. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Again, he just wants this to go away. He's like, if that's what it's going to take to make it go away, fine. Pilate released Barabbas for them, and then after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So this is Pilate saying, okay, it doesn't warrant being crucified, what he just said, and I don't believe that he needs that, but that's what you want, and that's what's going to make this all go away. Okay. So he hands him over to be crucified. Now here's some things I want you to know about this. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Again, as I said, he just wants this thing to disappear. He has no interest in their internal arguments over what's going on. He just wants it to go away. He released Barabbas for them. Again, I want to reemphasize that a known terrorist murderer is less dangerous in the mind of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, than Jesus. They knew. They didn't want to acknowledge him, but they knew that he was a dangerous man. He's the most dangerous, peaceful man that ever walked the earth. And then after having Jesus scourged, again, people, almost, people often died from it. From what I can read, about half the time they died for that. In fact, one of the next stations, you'll see a, a reference to Simon was standing on the side of the road, and they just grabbed him at random, apparently, and had, Jesus, had him help Jesus carry the cross. 
And that was because Jesus had lost so much blood and he was so weak from simply being scourged that he couldn't carry it himself. So they had to have somebody help him carry it. That's another station that we'll talk about. But as he's then going, again, here's the important part that I want you to take away from this. Jesus could have pulled the deity card. He could have pulled the God card and said, I'm I'm not going to allow this to happen. He could have done that at any time. But his burden, his passion was reconciliation of the people to God. So I want to ask you this. The next time that you feel it's too hard to forgive someone for what they've done to me, it's too hard to put someone else's needs ahead of mine, it's too hard to set aside the things that I want in order to give someone else what they want or what's good for them. The next time you start thinking those things are too hard, I want you to think about what Jesus did for us. Jesus gave himself all the way up to death. When I do weddings, one of the things I illustrate is submission to Jesus. And why would we submit to Jesus? And why would we submit to one another in a marriage situation? And the reason is, it relates back to this. Jesus gave himself to the point of certain death, painful, excruciating death for us in a selfless act of sacrifice for us. So that's why we do it for one another. Because Jesus showed us how. Jesus showed us the way. The cross is not about punishment. It's not about death. It's about love. It's about love. And so the last scripture I want to show you is John 15, 12 to 15. This is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember we talked about the greatest commandment of Jesus a couple weeks ago, okay? What are, the, what are the greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God and love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's his commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if I do what I command you. Um, no longer do I call you slaves, For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls you his friend if you follow his commandments. And his commandments are to love one another. Love the Lord, love one another. That's as hard as it gets. And Jesus will call you his friend. So it's not about pain, it's not about death. It's not about torture. It's not about wrongfully accused. It's about pure love. It's about servanthood. It's about faithfulness to what you're called to do. Jesus knew that he was called to do this for us. It's about being faithful in the, in the face of everything coming against you, up to and including death. And Jesus refused to set that aside. And he did that for you. And he did that for people who don't know him. He did that for people who know him and reject him. But mostly he did it for you. And so if you're sitting here right now and you know Jesus and you call him your Lord and Savior, then you are his friend. And you are called to love one another selflessly as he did for us. 
But if you don't know Jesus right now, I want to let you know that this is an opportunity to maybe know Jesus for the first time ever. Maybe you know of him, okay? You've heard it preached. Maybe you know of him, but maybe you don't know him. And maybe you've never said, I want to make him my Lord and Savior. I want to give my heart to him because of what he did for me. And that's all he wants for us. So if you would like to be reconciled to God, if you want the reconciliation that Jesus offers, all you have to do is to say yes. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. So if you're sitting here right now and you're feeling that pull, that tug, that yes, I want to quit running, I want to quit pretending like I don't need this, and I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to say yes to his selfless offer of reconciliation to the Father. You can do that. And I'm not going to have you stand. Sometimes we have people stand or raise your hand or something if you want to give your heart to Jesus. I want this to be a decision just between you and the Father. And here's what you do. The Word says, the Bible says, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you can confess that and you believe that, the Word says you are saved. And you have that opportunity for salvation through Jesus, and it's just that simple. So I want to invite the worship team to come up. (coughs) Excuse me. We have several ways that we can respond to a message like this. The first one is just prayerful in your chair right now. You can say yes to God. You can say yes to Jesus and live that abundant life and have that eternal life that starts the moment that you say yes to Jesus. It's not something that happens when you die. It happens when you say yes. You can have that. If you're going to get baptized, baptism is a wonderful way to cement that thing. Go into the water and come up a new person, a new creation in Christ, it says. So what a great response, whether you have made that decision a long time ago and you say, I need to reaffirm this right now. We have an opportunity to do that in front of all these people to make that declaration. If this is the first time you've ever said, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, what a better time than to be baptized right now. See, Jesus and the disciples made it a point to baptize people as soon as possible after they said yes to Christ as a, as a public way to, to cement that deal. And so... If you didn't, we didn't do signups, okay? If you want to be baptized as a public profession of what the Lord is doing in your life, what he has done for you, you can drop in. We've got some beach towels. We've got t-shirts that you can change into. I want to offer that up to anybody who wants to spontaneously do that. And we're going to do that in a minute after communion. So if you know and you've been planning to be baptized with us here this morning, now would be the time to go change and then come right back in because we're going to go through communion right now. And I want to invite everybody to stay. When we do communion, I'll explain it here in a second. I'd invite you to stay. Come back to your seat and wait with us and celebrate the baptism. There's no better moment than to watch someone come out of the water new. The look of joy on their faces is one that you can't duplicate. So I want to introduce communion. Communion, the way we do it here, if you're new, 
is at the crosses, you can, self, you can serve yourself. Okay, we've got juice, we've got bread and little gluten-free crackers. You can dip it and serve yourself there. Gabe and I will be up front here and we'd like to serve you. We've got wine and we'll serve you communion. Let's do it with a thankful heart and remembrance of what Jesus did, not just who he was as a man, but what he did and what he endured in order to reconcile us to the Father. Let's do it with that thankful heart and then return to your seats and we will have baptisms immediately following that. So if we could bring the lights down just a little bit as a response time. Feel free to stand up and start moving around or taking communion.
verses 38-39 Peter Peter said to them repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself so again if you feel the Lord calling you to himself acknowledge that call feel free to take take part in our baptism ceremony. So those who are in want, in need of being baptized, come on up. We could bring the lights up a little bit so you can see. We don't want to lose anybody in the water. Come on in. Okay, yep, jump in. You want help? It's nice and warm, just like a bathtub. All right, I know. Okay, turn around, face that way. Just sit right down on that. Okay. Thanks. Okay. All right. Melody, how do you feel about doing this today? Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. That is a good answer. That's a good answer. All right. Melody, do you believe... Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins, was crucified, and resurrected again on the third day? Yes. Then it is my honor to baptize you. If you could pinch your nose. It's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. to say, I should have when they get home. We have towels, we have t-shirts to change into. It's a balmy 25 degrees outside, so it's not going to matter. I want to offer you the opportunity. Okay, well then let's celebrate one more time what the Lord has done here this morning. Thank you, everyone, for coming this morning. Thanks for hanging out with us a little bit long. Um, 
What a beautiful day to celebrate the Lord. If you want to stay and just worship, the team will come on. They'll play another song, I think. Um, if you want to go, you can go ahead and go. But let's have an absolutely blessed week. We'll see you guys. Shout.